Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Gary Brugger has lived a fulfilling life of service to God, serving as missionary representative, conference president, pastor, evangelist. And this sermon was preached in 1988 at the God's Bible School and College Fall Revival in Cincinnati, Ohio. I know you will enjoy this excellent sermon that he titles, How Some Have Missed It. It's certainly been a great privilege and a great honor to be here at God's Bible School this week. Again, I want to thank you for the privilege. And, well, if I started saying thanks to everyone, but the meals, the music, the fellowship, you've all just been so very, very warm and gracious and kind, and I thank you from the very depths of my heart. Would you stand, please, for the reading of God's Word this evening? We're turning to the gospel according to Mark, verse 17, the gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 17. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do? that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Our Father, we thank you for this good day that you've given to us. Thank you for your help and your blessing throughout the past week. Certainly, Lord, our hearts have been thrilled from service to service with the wonderful ministry of the music department, and we thank you for it. We have rejoiced in every victory that has been won. 
We thank you for your help in the offering a few moments ago. We ask you to continue, Lord, to smile upon God's Bible school. You know every need. And we just ask you, Lord, to open the windows of heaven and pour out great blessings upon your school. Now, Lord, give special help these next few moments as we consider thy word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've always been fascinated by this one that we refer to as the rich young ruler. I see him as he comes to Jesus, he had tremendous riches. He not only had tremendous rituals, but he also had religion. And when Jesus laid down the principles that it was to inherit eternal life, he was able to say, all these have I kept from my youth. And evidently it was a good testimony because Jesus, the Son of God, did not contradict him. Just to give you a bit of an idea of what an outstanding young man he was, I want to tell you I've never met anybody like this. <laughs> I mean, if you were to have a young man like that come into your congregation, he would be somebody that we would almost take into membership, no questions asked. He was an outstanding example. He not only had riches and religion, but he also had tremendous respect. As he ran to the presence of Jesus and he knelt there before him, he was earnest. He was honest. And I appreciate that. But Jesus said, yet lackest thou one thing. It is amazing how God has the capacity and the ability to lay his finger on the exact issue in each and every one of our lives. He knows what we need. And he knew this young man. He said, you must sell all, you must give all, you must come, you must follow me. And then I see one of the saddest things. A young man who had everything going for him, and you just expect him to do it. But it says, and he was sad at that saying, and he went away grieved. And the thing that pierces my heart this evening is that as I walk him, watch him walk away from the presence of Jesus Christ, there is nothing that gives us any hope that he ever came back. He was so close to eternal life. He had so much going for him, but he evidently missed it. The Lord has laid this message on my heart, I think, because of there's been some tremendous things going on in Christianity in recent months. There have been some great, great tragedies. People who have been falling, some well-known, some noted. I'm not just talking about some of the multi-million dollar ministries. That would be discomforting enough, for that has its sad effect on even we conservative holiness people. 
but it is even making inroads into our ranks where that there are men and women that you and I have known personally who one time preached this gospel and lived as you and I are endeavoring to live, but tonight they're gone. And the Lord has laid this message on my heart for us this evening to observe from his word how some have missed it. And if I can see how some have missed it, then I know very well how Satan, who has been tempting and working against this human race for some 6,000 years, he is sly, he is crafty, he is a very able opponent to us. But if I can observe how he has wrecked some, it ought to help me to be more on my guard in those particular areas especially. I think of the first one from the example of Scripture, and that would be one that we would refer to with his biblical name of Lucifer, the son of the morning, one time an angel, but pride entered into his heart until he was going to promote himself, he was going to lift himself above God himself. God had to deal with that, and though Lucifer was an angel and already there in heaven, God had to take action and cast him out of glory to eternal damnation. He is the arch opponent of every one of us this evening, Satan himself. He fell through pride. And it is amazing to me how pride lays at the very root of so much sin. Oftentimes when people are tempted to murmur, do you know why they want to murmur? They feel in their heart, I deserve better. What makes them think they deserve better? Pride. I'm going to hurry on to our first parents, Adam and Eve. They were created holy, placed in the Garden of Eden, wonderful paradise. And God gave them the full use of the garden with the exception of one tree that he had placed there. And he said, you cannot have anything to do with that tree. But that is the very one when Satan came and began to tempt them, he sowed doubt in their mind, does God really mean what he says? And as they began to doubt and question the next thing was that they were backing up and backing away from what God had said that they were not to do. They yielded to temptation. Sin came. And we have had a terrible problem ever since. So one fell with pride, Lucifer. Our first parents fell through disobedience. I would look at the man Esau with you for just a moment. The firstborn of Jacob, excuse me, of Isaac, born just before his brother Jacob, he had the tremendous privilege of being the firstborn. He was a great hunter. He had some outstanding virtues. And yet, he who was strong enough to be out in the field, there hunting, 
doing his thing. But when he came back in and smelled a wonderful aroma. Now, I like to hunt myself. And uh, I think one of the one of the happiest times of my life is when I've been out tramping in the woods all day and I just have a ravenous appetite and I come home and when I step inside the house, I can smell the wonderful aroma of the evening meal. And after you've been outside, whether it's working or hunting or whatever, I mean you're just famished and you have a wholesome appetite. And oftentimes when I come into the house from a time like that, whether hunting or working or whatever I've been doing, but I smell that, I think about Esau. You know, I want God to build some guardrails and some guards and some checkpoints in my life to make me continually aware and on guard of spiritual values. Esau came in. Now, he said, I've got to have something to eat. Jacob said, hey, buddy, I can fix you right up. But I'll tell you what it's going to cost you, your birthright. The most precious thing that Esau had, a tremendous privilege, a tremendous inheritance that was his because he was the firstborn. But he treated it so lightly and so casually because he said, man, I'm famished. I'm going to die. What good's a birthright going to do me if I'm dead? i got to have something to eat. Take it. Give me something now. You see, that's a spirit that has been injected to, uh, into our age. That's one of the reasons that uh, America is in the credit mess that it's in. Because we are not going to wait. If we have to save for something, we'll forget about it. We'll go borrow the money and get it now. I remember the years that I was in the banking business and as different people, I was a loan officer and as people would come in for different things. And I remember a particular young couple who had just gotten married and we had financed their home and they each one before they were married had a new car and they had also bought a boat together and Finally, they came in and they said, now, we need yet another loan. Well, they were already just as far as I could go with them. And so they made the application. I took it to the loan council and they said, we'll have to have uh, one of their parents. Their parents were well-known customers of the bank. They said, if they would be willing to co-sign, we'll go along with it. But they're in trouble. They're in trouble. And so when they came in to see if their loan was approved, I told them the words of the loan council and, and uh, that they would have to have their parents come in and co-sign. When they came back, they brought to one of their parents, and I saw that father as he stood there, and he literally cried with that son and daughter-in-law now. He said, kids, you've gone too far. Now, he said, I can co-sign for you if you just think you have to have it. But he said, kids, and the loan was for all new furniture in their new house. He said, if you would please, it was several thousands of dollars. He said, if you would please. He said, we can give you enough secondhand stuff to help you out. He said, we can go around to some secondhand stores. 
He said, just get one room at a time. You don't have to have it all now. He said, your mother and I were married 25 years before we ever had enough to get a new living room suit. He said, please, you don't have to have it now. And I saw that daughter-in-law, and I saw that son, and they said, listen, Dad, you may be willing to wait on stuff, but we're not going to wait on stuff. We're going to have the best, and we're going to have it right now. And that's a spirit that has gripped many in our nation tonight. But it's not only in our financial areas, but it carries over, and that's the, that's the frightening thing about many of these things. They are not just in one area of our lives, but they spill over into our whole lifestyle. And Esau is a tremendous example of that. He was so impatient. He couldn't have been that close to perishing. I mean, he was out tramping around in the fields. If he had that much strength, he could have lasted long enough to make himself a peanut butter sandwich, to get a little beef jerky or something. But he had to have it now. I think of the children of Israel, and they came to Kadesh Barnea. God's, God's plan for them was to come to Kadesh Barnea and then to go directly into the land that he had promised for them. But they camped there and they said, we're not so sure we want to. We want to see what the land's all about. And so they, they arrived with 12 spies, sent them out. The spies brought back the report. And 10 of the spies said, we can't do it. It's too much. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, we can. But the people listened to the ten negative ones and said, we can't and we won't. And God dealt with his people Israel because they doubted what his will was, what he intended for them to do. Now that is a type of you and me being sanctified going into the promised land, going into the land that God has promised for us, spiritually speaking. And it is no small matter for us to doubt whether or not God wants us to press our way into the experience of entire sanctification, of heart purity. It is a frightening thing to back up on that. In my first pastorate, there was a lady who had been a student at God's Bible School back in the 50s in Christian Workers Course. I did not know that for a period of time. When I met her, she was, she was anything but a Christian. She sought God. She had a, a drug problem. She had a drinking problem. She had a stealing problem. She had a lying problem. She had the whole gamut of it. Her mother was a saint in the church. We spent some time with her mother, and her mother went back and filled us in on the back, uh, background of this, of this daughter of hers whom she was tremendously embarrassed with. 
Because not only those things were involved in her life, but she had already broken up four homes. And when her mother told me that she had one time been a student at God's Bible school, I shook my head in disbelief. She said, it's true. I did a little bit of checking, and I found out that as she was here for the that back at that time, they had the Christian workers 10 weeks. Of course, I believe they referred to it. I learned that she was an outstanding soul winner, that God mightily used her. And even in the church that I was pastoring, I learned that she had such a tremendous influence that that little church, when I went there, it was only, it was only running about 15, my first year out of, uh, out of Bible school, but the record attendance for that church was 176. And she was one of them that back in its glory days had been instrumental in helping to put, put the people in the church there. She had a tremendous ability. And the more that I learned about her, it all focused back to the time in her life where she literally refused to surrender her will to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And from that time on, it was downhill. You don't doubt God's Word and not pay an awful price for it. He means what He says. I think of the man Samson, a Nazarite by birth. Blessed and owned of God when he was pure. But I notice something that he begins to do. It seems like an innocent thing, at least he treats it like that. He begins to flirt with those that he has no business flirting with. He begins to establish some relationships with those that he has absolutely no business having anything to do with. Now, you are as aware of the fact as I am of the tremendous problem of divorce and remarriage in our society. It is rampant. People think little of it in our society now. There's no longer much of a shame or a stigma against it. I've been in church circles long enough to realize now that some folk may think they have the answer, but I've never really run into anyone yet that does have the answer. But I find my responsibility, particularly in preaching to a congregation like this of precious young boys and precious young ladies, is to warn you and to remind you that while you are here, probably one of the things you're going to be looking for the most is a companion for life. So be it. That's good. This is a great and a wonderful place to get one. But remember, you have but one opportunity in this life. When you take those marriage vows, it is not until debt do us part. It is not until problems do we part. It is not until you find that they have some strange ideas that you weren't aware of that you're going to part, but rather when you make that commitment, it is until one of you lay the other 
in the arms of God. Amen. I just want that to sink in. I used to throw stones in some farm ponds, old mining ponds. Whenever I hit a deep hole, I could always tell it'd go kerplunk. And I just felt that truth go kerplunk. And I wanted to settle in. Before you ever get tangled up, If you never make the first date with that one who's not a Christian, you will never become emotionally involved. Amen. Establish that as a principle. In fact, I would go so far as to say if they're not a holiness young person, if you never make the first date with them, You'll never become emotionally involved with them and say, Oh, God, do something. I could take you to number after number after number of people who were going to either get that young man saved and make him a conservative holiness person or do the same with that girl And it just didn't work. And so many of them are lost to the cause this evening. Had Samson never began to flirt and have undue relationships with those that he had no business having them, he would not be the sad, sad memorial of a man once mightily used and owned of God, but then blinded and doing what a, what a dumb animal could do, just grinding at the Philistines' treadmill. I go on to the first king of Israel, Saul. He was God's chosen and God's anointed. But when he would not wait upon God. God established the time frame and he said, you wait. But he said, oh, the Philistines are out there. We've got to offer a sacrifice. And he usurped authority that wasn't his. And once he did that, it wasn't too long until he was making rice vows. And it wasn't too long until he was sparing what God said to kill. And on and on and on and ever downward was his life. But it started when he wasn't willing to wait on God's timetable. I think of Judas, the disciple of Jesus Christ, a tremendous heritage that he had. But all the pull of the money in that bag tied to, his, tied to the cord around his waist, and he loved it when it was heavy. And that caused him to take his eyes off of Jesus. And whenever you take your eyes off of Jesus, whether it's for money, and oftentimes that's what it's for, because Paul wrote to Timothy and he said that it is the love of money that is the root of all evil. And you and I have seen people pierce themselves through with many, many problems in our day because of the love of money. Demas the disciple 
of Paul. He had traveled with Paul. He had been in those churches. He had seen tremendous revivals. Perhaps he was there the very night when the one who had fallen and broken his neck and died and he saw God use Paul and restore that life. But there comes a time when Paul writes a very sad, sad testimony about Demas. And he says, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. In this day when there is so much drift and compromise and spiritual letdown, how easy it is for people to begin to love this present world rather than the rugged way of the cross. The Ephesus church once had the glory, the fire, the fervency. She's still laboring when Christ writes the seven letters to the churches. She's still laboring, but she's kind of just going through the motions. She's lost the real reason of why she's doing it. There's no presence of God. There's no spiritual birth. And it's all in vain. And Christ says, repent. Isn't it amazing when you just take just a, just a scan and there's dozens more that we could have paid attention to. But you can think of Lucifer, one time an angel, but he fell through pride. When you think of Adam and Eve who fell through disobedience, created perfect and pure and holy, but they fell. You think of Esau because of greed and impatience. Think of children of Israel at Kadesh Barnea and because they doubted God's word. Think of Samson with his flirting and his undue relationships. Think of Saul with his disobedience and impatience and not wanting to wait on God. Judas taking his eyes off of Jesus. Demas loving this present world. The church at Ephesus losing its first love. I thought one day how nice it would be if I could take this congregation and place it in a giant elevator and we would be able to punch a button and begin to go up. And as we went up and up and up, all of a sudden the wonderful fragrances on the breeze just cause our hearts to rejoice and then we hear coming from someplace the beautiful strains of the redeemed. The door of our car opens and we look and we can tell that we're there at the celestial city. There's a doorkeeper that opens the door for us and we're, we're permitted to look inside. We see the grandeur of heaven. Saints are rejoicing, but one catches our eye over here. We see him playing on a harp and singing the praises to Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. We asked the gatekeeper, I wonder if you'd tell me, that one playing on the harp so beautifully there, is that the one that was once a lad there in Israel? He slew a giant because of his tremendous faith and dependency upon God. He had a problem in his life, but he repented as deeply as he'd ever sinned and was restored to the, to the love of God. Is that David? Is that King David? And the gatekeeper would say, no, no, that's not David, but David's here. I'm glad he made it, aren't you? And then 
we think, well, perhaps uh, maybe that's one that walked with Jesus and, and uh, labored with Jesus. He was a fisherman. He was a rugged fellow, an outspoken fellow. He, he said he would fi fight for Jesus, and he did grab a sword and, and tear into the enemy. He, he meant to get ahead, and all he got was an ear, but, you know, he was after him. It, it, he denied Jesus, too, but... He again, he wept and he repented and he was restored and then God mightily used him and in just one message he had 3,000 converts. Is that Peter? And the gatekeeper would say to us, no, no, that's, that's not Peter. But Peter's here. Thank God he made it. I think, well, perhaps that might be the old battle-scarred warrior, the one who was willing to just do whatever it took to press up closer to Jesus than, than anyone else. He was always the one that had his head laid on the master's bosom. He just had, and we even have his precious book. And th there's just a depth there of his relationship with the Son of God that is very, very special. Is that John? No, no, that's not John. But he's here. Ah. Perhaps it's, perhaps it's the great church planter then, the great apostle, the theologian, the one that was shipwrecked, that was, that was beaten, that was imprisoned. Yes, that's him. That's Paul. He's rejoicing around the throne this evening. I thank God for that. But we can't stay any longer and we close the door of our car and now we start down. And down and down until the heat gets far more, far more than what it is in this place this evening. We're all tremendously uncomfortable. We loosen our shirt collars. It's not only hot though, though but it's, it's oppressive. And then there's the horrible smells that come to our nostrils. Then there's the terrible sounds, the screams that come to our ears. And we realize where we're approaching. And there we rap at the door. And the door opens. And we peer in to a black abyss. It shocks us. It frightens us. But yonder we see one who is writhing. One who is gnawing at himself. One who is screaming at the worms that are crawling in his flesh. One who curses the day that he was ever born. And we ask the fiend who's standing there at the door, who might that be? Would that be, could that be one who had such a wonderful beginning? God gave him a new heart. He had such a wonderful start in life and God was going to use him, but he got impatient, started doing things his own way and soon it wasn't too long until he was trying to kill his best friend and trying to save his worst enemy. Is, is that King Saul? And the fiend with a horrible, gleeful laugh 
says, no, no, that's not Saul, but he's here. Isn't that sad? He missed it. We think, oh my, could it be one who walked with the children of Israel? He was one who walked across the Jordan River, saw the mighty power of God demonstrated. But he saw, he took, after he had coveted it, and then he hid it and he brought the defeat of Israel, the death of 36 men. Is that Achan? And again, with an awful fiendish howl, he says, no, no, but he's here. Achan's here. He's lost. Oh, my, could it be that one that walked with Jesus? He saw miracles. He listened to the tremendous messages of Jesus Christ. He observed and witnessed the parables. But he got his eyes off of Jesus, onto money, and he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. No, no, that's not Judas. But he's here. Oh, my, I wonder. The last service of the opening revival, God's Bible School, 1988, the preacher read scripture about an outstanding young man so upright so much promise so much ability and he he even in, inquired about the way of eternal life but then he turned and he walked away from the presence of Jesus Christ he was sad, he was grieved, he was sorrowful, but he still went away. Is, is that the end of those who find the price of giving all to Jesus Christ, of taking up his cross, of following Jesus? Is that the end? And the fiend would say, that's the end. That's the end of all who find the price of yielding their all to Jesus Christ. Don't let it be your end. Don't let it be your end. But all oh, this evening, if you haven't given him your all, don't fall as some of these others have, but all oh, hurry to the foot of Calvary this evening. Would you stand, please? I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to lose the fire. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA.